Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. This is the second installment of our six-part series, and we'll be discussing chapters three and four. I'm Ben Adams, and uh, with me in this boxcar is a a whole panel of overthinkers, uh, starting with the the world's foremost expert on Slaughterhouse-Five, Shana Miloski. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, uh, and with, with Shana is John Parrish. Hello! Pass me the helmet full of stuff. I'll dump it out the window. Yay! <laughs> so <laughs> with next to our dumper, John Parrish, is Richard Rosenbaum. Hey, everybody. I will probably do some stuff also. Uh, Yay! <laughs> slowly dying of gangrene, we have Ryan Sheely. Well, <laughs> here we are, just trapped in the amber of this moment. <laughs> and next to him, finally, Jordan Stokes. You think this podcast is crowded? This isn't crowded. <laughs> so here we are, chapters three and four. Uh, the first chapter focused on our, our trip into the interior of Germany, and then uh, we have Billy Pilgrim's daughter's wedding night. So, so what do you think, guys? Um, I think there's Jesus imagery because, as I said, uh, I think last week I noted it, in high school, I wrote a whole paper on it. So it still exists. I wasn't crazy. I'm, I mean, I was crazy, but not about that. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, specifically, uh, in the chapter, in chapter three, there was stuff about this strange androgynous boy who could have been Jesus or an angel, or maybe he was just an Aryan um, because, you know, Nazis and all. Um, but also there was a chaplain who was a rabbi who had uh, was shot through his hand, like Jesus was shot through his hand. Or um, Billy Pilgrim, uh, at one point, he's getting off the train and he's trying to lower himself down and uh, there's like a cross beam, so... Uh, behind him is like a cross and he's just going down um, as angelically as possible and of course it doesn't end well because everyone hates him and wants him to die Um, but you have all these weird references to Jesus that are then like immediately undercut by something else happening that is either gross or horrible um, or they're just Nazis and you don't want to compare Jesus to Nazis maybe Um, so yeah high school Shana not too dumb. That's actually, really, that's actually very interesting because usually when you have a book that has like way too much Jesus imagery, it's all stuck on one character. But from what you're saying, this is kind of spread thinly around on everything. There's the a fine a, paste the, of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say a thin film of Christ, but we were there at the same <laughs> same place at the same time. Yeah, yours was better. <laughs> Well, and also Adam and Eve uh, were mentioned a lot this time around. So, I mean, you could, I don't know, compare and contrast for your AP English essay if you'd like. Well, and there's also the um, the Serenity Prayer um, uh, that's on yep. Billy uh, Pilgrim's um, optometrist. I think it's on the wall of his office. Uh, uh, that you know that about granting the um, serenity to accept what he cannot change, the courage to change the things he can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. Uh, and then you know he, the thing among the things he cannot change are the past, the present, and the future. Um, and I think that that even actually the fact that those are put together as a trinity. Um, of, of things that cannot be changed uh, says that again, high school Shana, you know, give yourself some, you give your past self some credit. Uh, there's, uh, 
There's at least this is all of this, um, if not just the Jesus imagery, the kind of um, the religiosity is at least some of what's going on, um, especially in in chapter uh, three, I think, uh, but also in four to an extent. I mean, I'd like to talk more about this idea because I wasn't thinking about it until you guys mentioned it, the film of Jesus, how this um, there isn't just one symbol, like uh, symbols are displaced or misplaced onto different people or different objects. And I think that's true throughout the book. Um, Like in these two chapters, when I was just skimming through earlier, I was reminded that there is a lot of owl imagery as well, but it just it's uh, attached to many different people. Like the Germans make owl sounds and they also peer owl owlishly at things, but the alien ship, the Trafalmadorian ship also makes owl sounds. Um, and of course, uh, Billy Pilgrim wakes up in the future um, and he's in his uh, office and there's this mechanical owl there. So it reminded me sort of, I guess, how like uh, they say PTSD works where you see an image or you hear a sound and it like brings you back and forth through time. Actually, even in, uh, was it chapter three or chapter uh, four? I don't remember. Um, Billy actually hears a fire siren and then immediately flashes back to World War II. So, like, there's this idea, uh, or, I don't know, it's sort of linked to PTSD here, that you see something, you hear something, and it reminds you of something else, and you might start crying like Billy Pilgrim did, or you might start feeling dizzy like he did when he was at the golf course. Um, And I I just think that's an interesting use of symbols that... um, I think pre, um, I don't know, modernist or even postmodernist literature, symbols hadn't been used in that way. Like this was a, a different movement in literature that symbols were not just attached to one person or one thing. It wasn't a one-to-one relationship anymore. I think that's interesting because it, it does tie into, I think, something more realistic about, particularly for traumatic events, but the way memory works you know, in the Matrix, like, Neo is the one, and he's the Jesus imagery, and nobody else gets any Jesus imagery. But, like, your memories of real events aren't that clean. So even if you have a memory of some traumatic event, it doesn't all attach into one moment or into one person. It can be attached to any number of things related to that moment. There might be a smell or a sound or a sight or a word that cues a particular memory, and with that comes... It imports the entire the entirety of that traumatic event or whatever it may be. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just I was just thinking that, but it's a, a bunch of different things that trigger a bunch of different things. It's more of a right, like a web, rather than um, a Proust kind of you know this one cookie triggers the memory of my entire life. Right. It's kind of, well, this one sound triggers all of these different memories of all of these different things from all of these different time periods simultaneously. And I guess it's also um, this postmodern idea that um, if we link it to religion, that you have these uh, religions or philosophies that are all these intertwining symbols, you know, like in Christianity, you got Jesus, you got the blood, you got the bread, you know, all of that stuff is one body of symbol. But then when a big war, a big tragic event happens, World War II happens, like it's sort of exploded and made fragmented, like it can't hold together anymore. So all the symbols are thrown in different directions, attaching themselves to different people, different things, but not 
cohering into one life philosophy that could make sense to a person that a person could grab onto anymore. Like we were talking last week about how um, people were trying to put themselves together by uh, grabbing different objects or symbols from uh, gift shops or elsewhere in American culture. And in uh, these chapters, too, there were characters, um, you know, I think he said that they were clothed fragmentarily with various junk that they got from different soldiers or different corpses on the ground. Um, so I guess yeah, that even the symbols of religion are fragmented. The, uh, the Trelfalmadorans, who we meet for the first time in these two chapters, operate similarly because when uh, when they kidnap Billy Pilgrim, they it, it's it's alluded to something that we're going to see later that they're taking him back to Trafalgar to put in a, a zoo exhibit of sorts, an interstellar zoo. So the the sort of exhibit that they put him in has a handful of random bric-a-brac scooped up from Earth, including the the yellow barca lounger that he's going to hang out in during his his interstellar wormhole jaunt. And this is this is a great image because it, it kind of makes you imagine what else is in the little zoo, and maybe we'll find that out later. But I have to imagine it would be you know, similar to the way we construct like you know dioramas of what 15th century England must have must have looked like. And in reality, I'm sure any historian picking it apart is going to point out that you have like armor from the 12th century mixed in with castle designs from the 17th century and, you know, French uh, noblemen's tunics and all this stuff. So you have to imagine that uh, Billy Pilgrim's zoo exhibit is going to have a barca lounger along with like Russian soda pop and, you know, <laughs> Japanese TV and even if it is accurate, it's a greater conglomeration of stuff than would exist in any one person's place at any given time. Like it's it's not like we fill our living spaces to bursting with although you might say we do, haha, you know, consumerism. But it's not like we fill our living spaces to literally stumbling over bursting with stuff in the way that the typical historical diorama or hypothetical Trafalgaran zoo exhibit would. I'm reminded also, and this is perhaps a parallel of the the Germans who you know, are ferrying Vonnegut and Pilgrim and the rest from Luxembourg to back to Germany. Uh, there's the one train car in the in the in the convoy of trains in the the train, if you will, uh, where the Germans are occupying. It's it's spacious, and Billy describes it as having you know these richly appointed furniture and this this you know beautiful food, and it's well lit and it looks warm, and there are pictures on the wall, etc. It's a. It's similarly like overly comfortable. It's more comfortable than German soldiers would need, or perhaps be entitled to on such a mission. But you know, it's a, it's a similar surrounding of stuff. Like that, these people are surrounded with the finest loot they can get their hands on from the war, and that's that's their means of, I guess, protecting themselves, of distinguishing themselves from the prisoners they're escorting. I'm thinking about this. Oh, sorry. Go on. Please. Oh, I, I just I, I was going to say something else. I mean, this made me think about like there's another theme. I think that's I mean running out throughout the book throw for, th- so far, but also in these two chapters is about. I mean, I think another way to reframe what we were talking is about um, the role of context and kind of how context changes over time. So, kind of returning to the idea of the Tramalfadoran um, uh, zoo and why it seems overly stuffed with bric-a-brac is that well, this zoo exists in four dimensions, right? And so. 
that in one's life you might have stuff at different times in your life and then you get rid of stuff and and um and you go through you know the things you have and use at different places and different times um in a different in the Tremalfandoran view of time it's all there at one time um and i think that this idea of um of of what something is and how it seems in different um times really runs throughout these um these chapters i mean I, I think another example of this of as we were talking about this that kind of just links through another piece of this is right at the beginning of our our first chapter of chapter three is uh is the description of the germans and the dog and specifically the dog uh, who had sounded ferocious uh in the distance um was a female german shepherd who was shivering with her tail between her legs um and you know she uh had never been to war before she had no idea what game was being played uh, and I think that that idea of um, you know these various ways of, of reframing uh, context um, and kind of different um, uh, the difference of perspective and time um, is something that's played with in an interesting way um, in these th- these couple of chapters it's, it's all in the game <laughs> it's, it's something Vonnegut returns to in other novels there's another one uh, I want to say it's it's Dead Eye Dick, I think, where he, where the the protagonist ends up spending a good portion of time in, I believe, Haiti, and the protagonist makes the observation that the you know the the Haitian language or the sort of uh, the sort of patois that's used in Haiti is unique in that it doesn't have any it's a it's a language without any tense to it, any past or future tense. Things just sort of happen all at once. And Vonnegut notes in a prologue that this isn't actually true. He knows this to be true while he's writing the novel, but it's what the it's what the narrator believes. So this seems to be something that Vonnegut is revisits at other points. The idea that you know time isn't isn't perceived in a linear fashion. Um, can I also uh, talk about the zoo for a second? In that, um, if you follow me on Twitter, hey everyone, follow me on Twitter. Um, I uh, do tweeting on the Twilight Zone uh, infrequently, and uh, there's a famous episode of the Twilight Zone from the first season called "People Are Alike All Over," um, which has a character in an alien zoo, which obviously is a very common concept in you know the classic science fiction. But uh, that may, might have been the most uh, common example of that um and it, yeah it was um very focused on this idea of um uh, fakeness of this idea of uh, there being a stage that a person lives on and they're watched by aliens um and of course it's also a tv show um and i was i'm wondering if vonnegut is literally and directly referring to this episode and if so what that could mean Well, I think it's I think it's worth asking just the more broad question of why this this idea of humans in a, in an alien zoo is is interesting. What about it causes it to keep recurring in in sci-fi? Um, and I think there's at least a hint of it in the book here because we hear about the, the Traformidorians and the, their view of free will that humans are the only people are the only aliens out of these dozens and dozens of species that are known. Um, that believe in free will, and so it's by putting us in a zoo. It's a way of saying that this is the in, these are this is an interesting thing about the human condition, and this is something that we think is different about humans that might be different from other hypothetical alien intelligences. 
And of course, from the the Christ imagery standpoint, the the whole idea of predestination is kind of interesting as a contrast because, uh, of course, we have different views of Christianity that talk about predestination and whether or not it's even possible to change your fate with respect to salvation and other uh, religious concepts. At least um, it doesn't seem to be possible to change Jesus's fate, right? Like, oh, I don't know. We probably don't want to go down a theology loophole on this, but like, it's fairly clear, right? Like, you know, um, I make this pass from me or whatever, but if it's your will, then then so it goes, right? Right. That the people, at the very least, there's no desire to change the fate. It, it kind of has to happen this way. Uh, Does that make it more or less end. valuable than if it were freely chosen, though? There's an awful lot of like absence of free will in these things. I wanted to yeah. get um, Ryan get your read on the notion of the river of humanity flowing through the kind of like the the prison system there, and um, how the Germans know that this sort of cargo can be made. It's a liquid that can be induced to flow or something like that. They say. Yeah. So like, there, there's a, some kind of sense that while an individual person might have free will and be able to be obnoxious and be able to do something like, you know, die in the train car so that the soldiers have to drag them out. Um, when you have a large enough number of people, free will vanishes. I mean, and that, I mean, what you just described is fascism, right? <laughs> in a way. Well, or, so, or social science. Or social, well, I guess, I mean, I think it's, well, I think it's interesting. I guess, um, I, I think it's a huge question uh, in the social sciences is, you know, the, the chicken egg uh, question of social sciences is kind of what comes first, like the individual or the collective, right? And so is it, is the main problem that we have collectives and groups of people, um, uh, you know, the, the stream and then, in, and then in individuals get, um, get pinched off uh, from the stream? Uh, or is it that you have individuals um, uh, as, as the starting point that then by some miracle come together um and i think that so i think that in this way that that you have uh either in the book as a whole or at least in the context and in the kind of the view of the germans um a stream that is that is that the the flow and speed uh and direction of is is controllable is is interesting and again it's um i don't know if i've read or seen enough to know whether that's kind of a you know a that 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 mode is um, is dominant uh, in kind of Vonnegut's view, but it's it's interesting in its appearance here, and and I think it's noteworthy that it's kind of um, seen uh, in uh, that I saw and heard it associated in this way with uh, the the Germans, whereas kind of the view of you know um, a, a lot of the view of of individuals coming together either in market exchanges or in in kind of collective action um is much more of a, a hallmark of kind of liberal political thought um uh, you know and and you know kind of enlightenment thought and um and kind of more rational choice economic theory so i think it's interesting in that in that um the contrast uh and and the way that the stream is brought up uh there but certainly you don't see um, Vonnegut offering you a sort of a liberal alternative, right? No. Like, no. Um, be- because his American characters are like either the most evil characters we've seen so far in a book that is full of Nazis, or they are Billy Pilgrim who like who takes no action and does no thing. 
Right, right. No, exactly. And you, or it's Billy Pilgrim. Um, I, I especially think then about um, him kind of uh, in chapter three, drifting through his town, right? And through the um, like rundown part of his town um, and seeing kind of urban blight and just kind of, and you know, seeing, um, you know, um, an African-American approaching his car and just going on, right? Just continuing onward. Uh, and when the, um, when, and, and when uh, someone's going door to door and, and ringing on his doorbell, he just does nothing, right? And there's a lot of, um, right, so there's not a, a liberal alternative there is that there's still actually a sense of even when um, Billy Pilgrim in those chapters is uh, or in the moments of the chapters where he's um, kind of flash forward, he's very alone in a lot of these, um, or especially the ones in the kind of dominant thread that's leading up to the uh, abduction. He's alone, but in that way, he's still kind of bobbing forward um, with the stream, which I think is interesting. The interesting thing, though, is in uh, even in those alone scenes, sometimes he is with someone, but the someone is in a weird way Vonnegut. Like he's waiting mm. for the aliens to come get him, and someone drunk dials him and yep. has the the mustard gas and roses breath. And you're like, wait a second, it was Kurt Vonnegut from the first chapter. Yeah, um, just and, about to say. And then there was I another totally point. Didn't get that. Uh, it was like an inside joke from like the first part of the book, I guess. Um, but also, um, there was another point uh, when they were on. Was it when they were on the train, or they just got off the train? Um, where Monica says, "I was there." Like mm-hmm. my friend mm-hmm. uh, O'Hare and I, we were there. And I, um, that a line like that, like I was there, it's going to be repeated. I know this isn't really a spoiler because everything's repeated in this book, but that's going to come up again and again and the the eye i guess being vonnegut uh just to remind us like oh this is a story and i'm alienating you with all these characters and things uh you know that are funny or weird um but then he just interrupts it to remind us of the truth of it all um and and that's something you should watch out for as we continue reading yeah all this happened more or less right (laughs) exactly well, it, it takes it out of, to some extent, the the realm of a novel and more into the realm of storytelling. Because that's, that's more a convention of when you're telling a story to someone face-to-face is you're, well, then they did this and then they did this. And then, I well, I was right there and I saw them do this. And then you keep going on with the story. You know, they, even if you weren't there, the story's better um, if you're involved, if the narrator is involved somehow when you're, right. when you're telling it face to face. That that reminds me actually of, you know, the sort of uh, campground uh, sitting around the fire telling ghost stories and you're telling the story of this, you know, killer or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then, and, and the, the rest of the people's like, yeah, great. Like, how would you know that? It's like, because it was me. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of inserting, inserting your own authority, um, over the story because of that and and also threatening <laughs> the audience kind of simultaneously Kurt Vonnegut is calling from inside the house <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean I I'm reminded of all these characters who keep trying to insert themselves into the story in their own mind um like the guy who uh wants everyone to call him Wild Bob, but the only person who actually calls him that is himself. Um, 
But it seems kind of different to me when Vonnegut says I was there. It wasn't like I am trying to create this grand narrative of the war and I was the hero or I was at least a really important secondary character. It was just sort of off to the side. It's different than what's happening with Wild Bob and what Weary was trying to do, I think. I think maybe there's a little bit of contrast being made there. Do you think so? <laughs> well, I mean, it definitely seems like Vonnegut is making himself much less important than any of these other characters. Like, oh, yeah, I was there, basically. Well, and, and while we're talking about uh, Vonnegut's presence in the story, I should probably just, uh, you know, cop to how wrong I was last week when I uh, guessed that the scouts were secretly Vonnegut and O'Hare, because they, of course, get unceremoniously killed in the first page of uh, chapter three. Oh, yeah. Uh, so died. I don't think that was quite accurate. <laughs> Well, I was really good at uh, biting my tongue, by the way, just uh, last week. So keep doing that. I'm not sure that it. I'm not sure that in this book, summary execution is really ruling out that having been Vonnegut. You know, like yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Well, well, right. I was, again, I. Oh, go ahead, Jordan. Sorry. I was going to say, like, again, is sort of my my problem with this whole, like, lack of free will thing. I, I mean, it, it's interesting psychologically, and he, he does a good job working it out. But it, it seems to, you know, if there's no free will, then someone can be as evil as they want. You know, they can be a, a Nazi war criminal, and they they were just trapped in the amber of that moment, right? Um, so I, I kind of grapple with that a little bit. Um but on the other hand, maybe maybe that's what it takes to have an anti-war book is to like to sort of deny that the war was voluntary somehow. But I think that, that I mean the question creates a problem. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, but that also kind of makes it impossible for it to be an anti-war book because war is apparently inevitable since nobody's really in control anyway, so you can't prevent it. Right. But Nothing I, you can do. There's what if if there is no why, then what's the purpose of writing this book in the first place? Well, you can't have an anti-war book. That's like having an anti-glacier book. Ah, there you go. There you go. I mean, I think this is the main problem of of this book is when Vonnegut says this, does he mean it? Um, right. And the first time I read it back in high school, um, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't feel comfortable with what he's saying because it doesn't seem like an anti-war book, as you guys were just uh, noting. Um, but this time around, I think there's like this interesting irony going on where he's saying one thing through the story, through the narrative of Billy Pilgrim. But um, then in the framing chapters of the first and last chapter, he seems to be saying that something slightly different. There's this uh, jarring uh, contrast there. Like, for example, um, in one of these chapters, Billy Pilgrim is listening to a speech about Vietnam and how they need to be bombing there. And he's like, he doesn't uh, have a way to care either way. He just doesn't give a damn what happens and what doesn't happen. Um, but then you remember in the first chapter, Vonnegut was saying pretty adamantly that he told his kids, like, do not join the war, do not support any businesses that would um, be involved in war and that would kill innocents. And that seems to definitely come from uh, an anti-Vietnam place. I, I I would imagine. So I I think because of that bit of evidence and some other bits of evidence that are going to come up, I don't 
think that uh, Vonnegut quite buys into what he is saying. Huh. So, I mean, and you could um, you could even look at the Tremalfadorians from that point of view, that, like, they say, oh, well, we didn't really choose to kidnap you. It's just the thing that happened. And yet they did, you know decide to trick out a zoo with certain things that they they selected from from sears right and presumably like they go to the zoo and look at him in the zoo so it could be that um that it's just a cop-out right that that it's not things are not actually predetermined it's just a way of looking at things that is comfortable because it takes a lot of responsibility off of your shoulders and i, I think I that's would, a really good I reading I would also like to assert that it's entirely possible and not at all contradictory to both be anti-war and to see war as inevitable. Like in the same sense that I'm anti-glacier and that I wouldn't want a glacier to, you know, crush my house and everyone in it while I'm asleep inside, which is unlikely to happen where I live. Like, you know, it's a thing. Uh, But at the same time, I recognize that if a glacier is trekking its way through eastern New England and my house is right in front of it, no matter what I prefer to happen, that's that's going to be the outcome. And I I imagine Vonnegut's take might be similar in that he hates war and he thinks it's monstrous. But, you know, what are you going to do about it? I'm thinking of like the train problem. Like if you're driving a glacier and there, you know, are five people uh, lying down in front of the glacier, but you can move the glacier to a different glacier track and there's one person there. I mean, (laughs) that's kind of like the question that's being asked here, right? Right. But it's it's almost a different version of the hypothetical where you're you're driving the train and on the tracks are 20 people and on another track is only one person. But it turns out there's no switch anyway, so you're just gonna you, the, you, like your train is gonna run over those twenty people. Like you don't even have the choice of diverting the train to go onto the other track. It's just this is what's happening right now. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how closely this uh, relates, but it might. Um, it's when he's talking in at the beginning of chapter four, uh, briefly talks about um, about his about uh, Billy Pilgrim's wife uh, having had a hysterectomy. And um, I, did anyone else get the sense that that Vonnegut was kind of likening that to the firebombing of Dresden? That it's kind um, of a maybe. thing that happened, right? It's like the, the, uh, just out of out of nowhere, he kind of goes, oh, "Let's see, the poor woman didn't have any ovaries or a uterus anymore. They had been removed by a surgeon, by one of Billy's partners in New Holiday Inn." Okay, so they had been removed by a surgeon with absolutely no context, right? But the but the implication is not that just some surgeon came in and removed them. There's this whole surrounding circumstance that is completely not in the text, but which you kind of assume has to be there. And then, again, it's brief, but then later on in the chapter where, you know, he's going back and forth, and then and then uh, it's like, well, this thing, this horrible thing, but what are you going to do? Like, there's all of this stuff around it. It didn't happen for no reason, but does well, anybody else I, th- I think it's, I, mean, I think the characterization of the surgeon is interesting as you know one of one of Billy's partners in the new holiday inn which suggests someone that is just not enough just friendly enough to not be a stranger uh, but still someone that is capable of doing this not terrible thing but something certainly something with terrible results 
um, which I think is part of the larger project of this book. As you said, you know, almost none of the Americans in this book are figures of heroism. They're either villains, uh, cowards like Billy Pilgrim, or at, kind of at best, they're Wild Bob, who is you know de- rallying his non-existent troops while he's Delusional. slowly dying of delirium. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that because part of you, you think about the context of this book, it came out only 20 some years after World War Two. And there was very much uh, a mystique, I'm sure, about the people that had fought World War Two and the, the sorts of things that the United States had done in World War Two. Uh, you know, the firebombing of Dresden being one of them. And so part of the project of this book is to demystify this terrible thing that we did that friendly smiling people that could be your partner at holiday inn could have done this terrible thing i think um i'll i'll go i guess so it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that ben because that sort of provoked that sort of gelled a couple of weird disconnected thoughts i've had in a place one of which being about the the description of the surgery and how in a lot of the what I'm going to call contemporaneous because they're set in 1967, which is probably about when Vonnegut was writing the book, even though this period of time is now almost 50 years in the past. But a lot of the contemporaneous scenes in chapters three and four are sort of surrounded by products. And I guess from an alien viewpoint, this is an easy way to sort of typify America. It's like when we have a scene that's set in America, it's going to be surrounded by products or brands. So they're sleeping on a bed. It's their magic fingers bed. This operation was done by a surgeon. It's the surgeon who partly owns a Holiday Inn. Uh, Billy Pilgrim can't sleep, so he goes up and walks into his daughter's room. Uh, on his daughter's bedside table is a princess telephone extension. So there's always we're always being anchored in space by... By, you know, a product or a brand of some sort, by something very familiar and and commercial. And I was noting this also a little bit in the the wartime vignettes, you know, as Pilgrim jumps back and forth in time, and that we're being anchored there not by products, obviously, but by weird scenes, by weirdly distinctive things that are going to stick in your memory. Like what sticks with me is the the pile of frozen coats that the soldiers have to chip apart with bayonets because they've just frozen in a stack. And that's that's a distinctly weird thing. That's not something you would think about happening, but in the dead of winter in the middle of Germany, if you have a pile of coats they may left outside, it's like, oh, okay, this is a plausible thing that could happen. It just wouldn't have occurred to me. And Ben, as you mentioned the idea of like, dissolving the mystique surrounding this operation, surrounding the firebombing of Dresden, that's one really good way of doing it, is surround, is immersing the reader in these concrete, easily visualizable, easily tactile scenes and sensations, so you really get a sense of being there. So it's not so it's not some military operation, it's not an after-action report, it's not a newspaper headline, it's a bunch of freezing guys shitting themselves in a packed road in a packed uh, uh, rail railway car, who then have to chip apart these you know this stack of frozen coats. It's like these are real people in a weird situation. It's a it has much more of a sense of place. And that, that's interesting I, because there's no there's nothing uh, guaranteed about that framing of events. Cause of course, you know, military fiction is replete with, as we talked about last week, kind of the Tom Clancy 
effect of everything has a brand and a model number and a version number. And it's a P41, but not the 1942 version, the 1943 version with the with the twin 50 caliber barrels. And, you know, you can yeah, really yeah, get no into one, the minutia of no the technology. No one in a Tom Clancy novel has to take a shit. No one, right. in, a Tom Clancy, uh, no one in a Tom Clancy novel ever, you know, gets trench foot or the clap or any of the other millions of things that laid many, many, many more soldiers low in every conflict in the 20th century than the actual introduction of bullets into flesh. Like gangrene um, and all this stuff. I mean, the one big difference uh, to jump off a lot of the points that you just made um, between Clancy and, and Vonnegut is that just the way they write, Clancy has like these very active uh, sentences, you know, with the subject, verb, object, you know, um, whereas this book is full of this passive voice, and this is my inner grammar teacher coming out. Um, but, you know, when you were talking about uh, the the surgery, it was done in a, a passive way. Before we learned who did the surgery, it was like she had them removed. Right, they or, had been removed by a surgeon, yeah. Or throughout the novel, Dresden was bombed. Like, who bombed it? I don't know. It couldn't have been no one. It just, like, magically happened. Or um, Billy uh, found himself crying. Like, he wasn't crying. It was just, like, randomly coming from him, right? And I I think instead of making the book uh, more real, I think it adds this uh, sort of unreality to it, as if things are just magically happening um and also but on the other hand i'm not sure how much fancy how much is fantasy and how much is reality because there was also that scene where he's wait oh, billy is waiting for the spaceship to come and there's some champagne on the table and it says uh he thinks it says drink me so you're putting into mind like oh this is an alice in wonderland um sort of text and alice in wonderland like lots of things happen in a row and they're not really related in any way just a bunch of random stuff that's sort of vaguely linked and then the story just sort of ends because you know they ran out of ideas um so maybe slaughterhouse five is supposed to be like alice in wonderland but then he says oh the champagne was dead like that is not alice in wonderland champagne it's just it's nothing it's worthless so i'm not sure if he's trying to be realistic or he's trying to make it a fantasy but then he says it's not a fantasy um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure where he wants to be on the sliding scale of fantasy to right. well, reality. It, it relates back to the uh, free will issue, right? Because if, yeah, there's, no, if there's no sort of uh, deliberate human causality, then it's just a bunch of stuff that happened. Yeah. You know, I, you, you can't personality. It's like a shaggy you know, dog story. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, Pierce's personality is completely removed as a factor in history. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, for me, it circles back to something that you guys were uh, talking about uh, last week uh, in chapter one, um, and it's the exchange uh, with O'Hare's wife uh, and the kind of exchange leading up to saying, well, you know, I'll, perhaps I should call it uh, the Children's Crusade and then the discussion of the real uh, Children's Crusades. Because I think what I would 
remember from that dis, uh, discussion in chapter one is you know the idea of of, of she's saying you're going to tell it like this fantasy um, that you guys were the heroes uh, that you were John Wayne um, and uh, and and uh, and that you were you were these heroes and I think that there's a lot of these things senses uh, that we get both in the way um, that the 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 detail that John was uh, talking about and some of what Shana was talking about as well. Um, the, the, this kind of attempt to find these elements of of reality and fantasy and and in fact it's a way of kind of reworking and working through the argument uh, and discussion and kind of uh, understanding um, with with O'Hare's uh, wife um, in that uh, that not only is he kind of bringing out the children's crusade uh, ness of it uh, but that that you know part of the idea of the the children's crusade is that people thought it was going to be one thing, and it turned out to be um, the other thing, uh, and and uh, and 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 I think that this kind of the uneven ground um, that it stands on is. Um is, is for me like almost uh, the uh, the examples in action of how uh, how he's doing that. Um, I think another scene that I think that does this in a different way. We were talking about ways of kind of coping with or demystifying um, the Second World War, and one that we, in Chapter um, Four that we hadn't talked about yet is when. Um, uh, Billy is waiting for the flying saucer, and he um, sits down to watch this um, movie about the Second uh, World War, um, mm-hmm. and then and then he watches it backwards, right? And then there's this uh, kind of you know narrative within the narrative um, that is just just uh, flips the sequence and changes the meaning completely. Um, and I think that I don't know if any if that passage um, struck you guys, but I thought it was um, re- really uh, interesting. Um, and I think that that's actually interesting because. This actually circles back to something that we talked about at the top of the podcast um, and, uh, and some imagery that is uh, in uh, the beginning of chapter three, which is that this whole narrative uh, goes all the way back, extrapolates all the way back to Adam and Eve, right, to two perfect people. Right. Um, and uh, and I think that that uh, – and so I think that uh, that is um, really interesting. I don't know, did any of you guys have reactions to that um, that device? Uh, yeah. That was, yeah, the coolest scene. <laughs> well, it reminded me, there's, um, like, uh, Shana, you were saying about the uh, Twilight Zone episode, and this reminded me the most of um, the novel Time Zero uh, by Martin Amis, who... Not the Star I, Trek episode? No, the diff, a different one, um, ah. which uh, was this. The, the, this is exactly it. It's uh, the story of... It's just um, spoilers. It's about... Uh, uh, a, a Nazi war criminal who uh, is living his life backwards. Like after after death, he lives his life. You find out he just lives his life backwards and watches uh, all of the stuff that happened that he did in reverse, and is just figuring out. It's like, oh, this is all this great stuff. Look how I'm repairing the world. And then at the end, it sort of it, it, it reverses again, and he has to watch it from the beginning forward. And that is kind of his hell. Like having to this this thing that he thought was so amazing is now recontextualized, and in it, and and he has to see it as as it actually was this horrible, you know, destructive thing. And, uh, yeah, when I read this passage, I wanted to go back. I didn't actually get around to it, but I wanted to see 
whether that was whether this was supposed to be a reference to that or whether like which one um preceded the other although everything happens all at the same time so maybe it doesn't matter <laughs> yes that, that's true um i mean what i was uh you know honing in on uh was that part where um he, Pilgrim imagines this didn't happen in the movie that um, everyone, including Hitler, was going to be turned back into infants. And there's this idea, um, or infancy keeps coming back uh, throughout this these chapters. Uh, we have Vonnegut, uh, not Vonnegut, uh, Billy flashing back to his infancy where he's just cradled in his mother's arms, you know, Adam and even so on. So there's this idea that, you know, children equals innocence, and even baby Hitler was innocent. Innocent. Um, so I guess not only are we having a discussion, a f- philosophical discussion of free will, but also a discussion of uh, the, like the nature of humanity. Like, are we the tabula rasa or whatever? Um, and how does it change? And um, is it something that we can stop or bring back to its original form? I think that's he does it. mention oh. that he's impl- he has to he has to assume that Hitler was a baby. Because it's not right, exactly. in the movie. Right, he, this is something is that he imagines. Right, right, right. He doesn't have proof of it. There's no context, but he does. By the way, I just checked, um, and Time Zero came out in 1991. So <laughs> That is different. Different. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, by the way, I just checked, and Hitler was never a baby. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was born with the mustache. Ooh. That's a Twilight Zone episode. He didn't have great <laughs> hair back then. He didn't have the, the swoop. Oh my god, it, it so is a Twilight Zone episode. You know, like they're going through labor and then like the doctor also bits a beautiful baby boy. Dun dun dun, it's Hitler. I played by William Shatner. <laughs> yeah. And you know it's Rod Hitler Serling's like um, I was going to say, uh, like, I think just on this idea that um, Shanda was putting forth about the connections between uh, babies and, and innocence, then that also goes back to the, um, the uh, passage that we were talking about at the beginning of, um, of Chapter 4, uh, talking about um, Billy's wife's um, operation. And if you can't have babies, then you can't make innocence anymore, right? Um, and, so, and, 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 uh, and so I think that's another kind of way in which um, that – uh, is kind of connecting uh, is is another right if if we're kind of talking about you know these things as nodes that are kind of connected to one another in in this kind of networked way then that's another kind of connection between this and um, some of these other uh, images that are coming out throughout um, throughout the these two chapters. But of course, it's it's interesting because that observation about uh, Billy Pilgrim's wife is juxtaposed with the fact that it's his daughter's wedding night. And so right, there's, right, there's right. this continuation of the, of the, the cycle here. This is kind of the last night um, of her, his daughter being his daughter and not being, um, and now becoming somebody else's wife in a very kind of um, 60 old way of looking at kind of heteronormative way of looking at that. Um, but it's or very, just, just that she was a child, and now this is a sign of adulthood. You know, just a right. rite of passage. Right. I, I just found it doesn't that necessarily first... have to be related to the patriarchy all the time. Right. But I just or find that it? first sentence very interesting. Don't, don't let them hear you say that, Shana. <laughs> Kill all men. Wait, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> Sandry, go on. Then. <laughs> I was just saying, I found that first sentence very interesting. That Billy Pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night because normally it's supposed to be the 
the bride and groom that aren't sleeping on their on the wedding night. Uh, but here it's the father that's not sleeping on his daughter's wedding night. I like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so you could say in that case, if we extrapolate, then his going into um, the spaceship is sort of like the consummation of the entire book or the entire story of his life. He has been waiting for this one big day to happen, and it does. And, and, you know, now he is moving on to the adult stage of his life where he has been with the aliens, and now he understands how, how to live properly. Properly. Yeah, but or he's not maybe... really moving on at all because of course not. <laughs> back and forth, right? So it it completely undermines uh, any sense of progress. But you, you have you have to wonder why does why does Billy Pilgrim have the entire Serenity Prayer on his wall, and really the only part he needs is God grant me the serenity serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Period. Yeah, that is interesting. I was wondering if, like, maybe the... Because the Serenity Prayer says the courage to change the things I can, right? Um, whereas, really, it seems like what you would need the courage for, if if your life worked like this, would be to accept the things that you can't change. Like, that's... You're going to have to do it, but it, it would be very horrifying. <laughs> you would need to brace yourself for it. Well, the other... The, I mean, the last line of the prayer, obviously, is, and the wisdom to know the difference. So... Maybe Billy Pilgrim's almost complete lack of courage uh, in these couple of chapters, whether it's the courage to stand up to anonymous mobs who all want to kill him for reasons that are never clearly explained, except, you know, that he tends to kick in his sleep, or the courage to speak out against the bombing of Vietnam at this uh, Lions Club meeting. You know, he he knows the difference between these things and things he can change because he he knows there are things he can't change. He's come unstuck in time. So he has he the wisdom to know. Right. He's like, yeah. oh, okay, this isn't something I can change. I'm just going to, you know, bob along through it like I bob along through everything in life. He doesn't well, seem very serene, though, either. No, and we and we talked about the, wine, the champagne a little earlier. It's interesting because he knows that the aliens are coming. So presumably he's kind of seen the future here. But presumably if you know that the champagne bottle is dead, you don't even bother opening it. Because why would you? It's dead. You're, you don't want to drink it. Uh, but he does anyway. So he, he has this kind of interesting view of fate where he's just going to keep doing the things he's predestined to do, even though he, even though he knows what it's going to result in. Well, it says that he's and, a reason, the, the, reason that he, the reason that he opens it is because it seems to say, drink me. Drink me, it seems to say, so Billy uncorked it with his thumbs. Because it's somebody else telling him what to do, and he just goes ahead with it. Ah, yeah, there's yeah. that. Also, is the, is the also, champagne the only the first inanimate object that has gotten a so it goes when it was announced to be dead? <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it's the first. Yeah. Gonna have to check the forums for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Jordan, you were trying to get in. Yeah, no, I was going to just say, like, not only does he do what he's going to do, but he also feels what he's going to feel, right? Because um, uh, right at the beginning of that scene, Billy was guided by dread and the lack of dread. Dread told him when to stop. Lack of it told him when to move again. He stopped. So he uh, knows he's going to be kidnapped by a flying saucer. And he knows what's going to come of it. You know, he knows it's fine. Um, <laughs> he's going to get to see a breast. Right? We learned that in the, <laughs> the first podcast. Um, but he still feels what terrified. spoilers? He, like he can't. 
<laughs> he can't <laughs> act out uh, this little scenario of walking through his house waiting for it without feeling terrified to the point where he cannot move. Um, so, so his foreknowledge is not really getting him a whole heck of a lot. Well, that, that actually relates to something I want to highlight uh, that Mezdef posted here in the uh, the forums about uh, kind of the way Billy Pilgrim is stuck in amber, that this might be kind of permission from the author to just enjoy uh, the book. And let me find the uh, the exact line here, but uh, probably not. The, he, he says it might not be the exact intention of the amber metaphor, as Slaughterhouse-Five seems fairly intent on my not dreamily enjoying it. But sometimes I can't help myself, and I read it as the author giving my permission to appreciate the sentence on the page, even while being down in the weeds. Uh, which I kind of like, that it's this idea that even if you know this inevitable thing is going to happen, you could just kind of sit back and enjoy it nonetheless. I mean, I think that uh, works for me, because uh, I've read this book before, and now I can enjoy it more, because I know what's going to happen. So, <laughs> I, I guess I'm Billy Pilgrim in this case. Are you guided by dread while reading it? I'm always guided by dread. <laughs> and, this is normal. And before we we get too far, we we need to to, to pour one out for for Roland Weary, who's 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 passed away and who's blaming Billy Pilgrim for his death, which I found interesting. What what is it that Roland exactly blames Billy for, and not the Germans? Is it just being Billy Pilgrim that he blames him for, or is it not being one of the Three Musketeers? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah, probably the latter. Probably being someone that Weary felt he had to go back and pick up, and that in doing so, he was separated from the other two scouts briefly. So, I mean, if he he needs to assign blame to somebody, because Weary strikes me very much as the type who has to assign blame to somebody— and he can't assign blame to the other two musketeers because, A, they were noble and heroic and competent, and B, they're dead, and we can't speak ill of the dead. And, you know, the Germans are being mean to everyone in the very Catch-22 sense. The Germans have kidnapped everyone in here, so or have captured everyone in here, so obviously it's, it's not their fault specifically. So if it's anyone's fault, it really has to be Billy Pilgrim's. Right. He also he also says like he's speaking about himself in the in the third person, right? He says who killed me as if he's already dead. But he that but he's alive enough to ask the question. So it's again this anachronistic kind of sense of 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 uh you know, destiny in the terrible in the terrible way, the inevitability. And also the grandiosity, right, of, of thinking of yourself in the third person. It lines him up with Wild mm-hmm, Bob, mm-hmm. right, who doesn't say, come visit me, but says, come visit Wild Bob. Right. Um, well, maybe uh, we should wrap up then, because it seems like we have reached our one-hour mark, basically. And uh, I think that... A way to continue this conversation would be to go to the Overthinking It forums. We have two going, one that is the regular book club uh, for each of the chapters that we're doing each week. So this week, three and four. Next week, we're going to do chapter five by itself because it's pretty long. Um, But also we have our So It Goes thread in the forum where um, we have some listings of all the So It Goeses in the novel. And it's cool to see where they are and where they are not. 
Anyone have anything else to add? I'll, I'll wrap us up here with uh, another, I guess, another plug for the forum. Absolutely. That's uh, really where we want the, uh, the the conversation to continue for the Overthinking Get Book Club. Uh, one uh, last thing, we're, we're going to plug the other great content on Overthinking It. Uh, we are planning uh, further great things on uh, the Overthinking It book club. This will not be the last uh, book club for the year. So your your wildest fantasies could be coming true. But uh, we're not uh, we're not putting out just what we're doing yet. But uh, I hope people are getting excited for that. Uh, so with that, uh, join us on the forums. Let us know what you think. And uh, join us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. 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 deserve.